it's moments like that this morning that are humbling to me because I am sort of OCD, a little bit of a perfectionist, and so I think God allows those things sometimes just so I'll just get over myself. So I'm thankful for that. Well, that said, uh, a few other announcements. Um, our ladies' Bible study is continuing this week. Is it the last week or the... Oh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So um, VCA Zambia is having a big sale, and uh, Kelly actually has a sign-up sheet in the back. So in order to raise money for VCA itself, they're building several buildings, they're expanding campuses, and God has provided no doubt all the way through. But one of the ways they're trying to raise money is actually by an online bake sale. And so um, if you want to sign up to bake baked goods, or if you want more details about it, talk to Kelly, essentially what's going to happen is they're going to do the bidding online or I guess the purchasing, however it works. I think every item will essentially get $10 for it, so that will be the cost. But as it's leading up to like Thanksgiving, um, I think the day that you can purchase the things for 10 bucks, the actual sale day when you can go get them is like right before Thanksgiving. Is that correct? So your baked items will be due on the 20th, and then you can bring it in, whatever you signed up for. So more details, talk to Kelly after service, I'm sure she'll be able to communicate it more clearly. But essentially, um, it's another way that we can be involved with the ministry we already support. And with that being said, I have some good news. We have a little boy that we are supporting. <coughs> and his name is Emmanuel Mwape, at least that's how I'm saying it. I'm probably totally butchering it, but... He is a young man of seven years old. Their ages are typically estimated because they don't have records of these things. But he lives in George, which is in the South Campus. So um, we purposely picked somebody in the South because that's where all the, mis the short-term mission trips go right now. So I wanted to pick somebody that if one of you would end up getting called by the Lord to go, you'd have the most likeliness to be able to get to meet the young man that we sponsor. And so he lives in George Compound with his sister and his brother-in-law. He lives in a four-room hut. His brother-in-law sells fish. His sister is a housewife. And his mother has already passed. She's dead. And his father does not claim him. So widows and orphans in their time of need is God's heart. So he's taken, uh, his, his dad does not claim him. He's taken a second wife. And he is actually the fourth born of his father and mother. He has two elder brothers and an elder sister. And he sleeps on a sack. Which my daughter asked me, what's that mean? And I said, well, um, for us, maybe that would be like a, a nice sack that you could buy at Aldi's. He sleeps on that. Except it's probably burlap and itchy. So um, anyway, we get to support him. He likes soccer. And um, hopefully one day... It I just encourage you, we're sponsoring him financially, but we really need to get just in prayer for him because um, he has all kinds of odds against him, but what we want to do is get food in his belly and provide him a place to, to get educated, and we also want him to know Jesus. And so these are the three things that VCA offers. 
So I share that all with you just to know that out of what goes in the box in the back, essentially 10% of that at least, typically more, goes out to other ministries to support things like this or people like this. So that said, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. So Hebrews chapter 6, last week we studied kind of a difficult passage, but we're just going to read through it for continuity's sake because uh, every text is in a context. And if we read it outside of the context, many times we end up making a pretext or we make it mean whatever we want. But it's written in the letter that was written to the Hebrews. And as you go through the book of Hebrews with us, I would encourage you to read before us and after us and and just read it throughout the week if you get a chance start with the passage we studied the week before and read all the way through so that when we come together on sunday morning you've already got questions in your mind about what you've been reading and perhaps by the leading of the spirit we'll be able to address those questions but last week we read in chapter 6 verse 1 through 12 he says therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of christ Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to open shame and so this particular passage seems like a very scary passage because what it's saying is in many ways to whom much is given much is required and so if you've heard the truth you've been a partaker of the holy spirit if you've tasted of the goodness of god and yet you walk away you walk away according to making a decision against light you've had the truth revealed to you and you decide to do otherwise but the reason that he puts this in here is not to discourage those who are believers but instead to encourage them because if you've been a partaker of these things what's going to happen is you're not going to walk away you're not going to turn your back on someone that you know personally And so if we look at this passage, he goes on to say, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. So the rain falls to the earth just like it does on the soil. The rain of the word of God falls down upon us like rain. And it depends upon, if you remember the parable of the sower, the condition of our heart, whether or not our heart is ready to, to receive it and so with that being the case if we look at this particular passage it doesn't just say the earth that receives the rain it also says it's useful by those for those by whom it is cultivated so we have a part to play in cultivating our hearts and preparing them to grow fruit god sends the rain he sends the seed onto the soil of our hearts but we need to do our part and make sure that our heart is tender 
and willing to listen to the Word of God. It needs to be cultivated. So the heart that's cultivated and receives the rain produces fruit and herbs that are actually useful for us, and it receives a blessing from God just like we do. But if, these, uh, if this ground bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But then he goes on to say, but beloved, remember this letter is not to unbelievers, it's actually to people that are believers. He says, but you, beloved, were confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Then he says that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, don't stick around on the, the elementary principles. He says we need to move forward. He doesn't say we need to move away from the foundational elements of Christ. What he says is those are foundational truths. And so if we spend our whole life eating baby food, is what he says, then we're never going to grow. But at the same time, if we don't eat baby food, we don't get the chance to move on to bigger things like meat. And so faith is built on the foundational truths and the principles of Christ. It has to start there. He's the only name among men given from heaven by which man must be saved the only way but the goal is not to stay there at the day of our birth in the hospital the goal is to mature and get strong enough so we can walk and so we can do things the goal is to mature not to remain as children in our understanding of god so my question that i have for you and i have a couple there is is your relationship with jesus producing things that accompany salvation there are things that should accompany salvation. He writes in James, the, or James writes, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, faith without works is dead. But he says, you're not saved by works, yet, at the same time, your faith in Jesus will produce works naturally, just like a fruit tree will produce fruit by whatever kind it is. And so there are things that accompany salvation one of which is an obvious, should be from Galatians chapter 6, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. But then he points out here that these believers actually had works that accompany salvation that were showing up. Some of which were labors of love in his name. Now many of us, and many in our society, do nice things for people but they don't do it in the name of Jesus. We have this opportunity as followers of Christ, not only to do nice things, but to do them in the name of the Lord so that he would be glorified and not so much just us. And I say that because if you go online, there are many, a multitude of organizations that offer humanitarian relief. And I'm very thankful for them. But... Many times they don't glorify God, and so they're kind of in vain, even though they produce practical help. They're not in vain in the sake of that they don't 
help those who are in need. They are a blessing. And so if you're involved in any of those organizations, good. But what I'm saying is that many times we have opportunities to do things for people, and we can actually do them bearing the name of Christ as we do them. Not just saying, hey, this is all for Jesus about everything in my life, but when somebody says, hey, that was really cool what you did for that little boy, or that was really cool what you were able to do for that family, if they notice something that we've done, we have to be really careful that we don't take the glory for ourselves. And I'm, I'm the worst. Uh, many times the Lord lately has been reminding me, hey, you had an opportunity when that person commended you to say, it's all Jesus. He's the reason that I did it. And so there, that's something that should come along with salvation. But then he also says, service or ministry is what your Bible might say towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Service towards the saints. Did you know that you're saints? Now, many of you might have the kickback in your heart, like, I don't know, you haven't seen what I did last week, or what I said to my wife this morning, or how, how I interacted with that telemarketer on the phone. But, but the reality is, is we are not saints because of what we do or don't do. We are saints because we are believing in Christ and following Him. So, past service and present service. He says there that you have shown towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints, verse 10, and you do minister. This is not, unfortunately, what we fall into as believers is we kind of, we do something for the Lord and we go for it. And then we get tired and we, we kind of, you're like, you know, back in the day, I did all kinds of stuff for Jesus. No doubt that's amazing. But what Christ is always trying to do is things in our lives today. God is not a God of the past. He's not a God of the future. He's the God of now. And so in that reality, we only have today to live for him. And so, but these believers had works that accompany salvation. They had things that were being produced naturally from their lives because of their relationship with Jesus. And he encourages them by saying, don't worry, God has seen those things and he's not negligent to reward you for them. So verse 11 and 12, I kind of want to camp out on for just a minute as we get ready to go into today's passage. He says this, We desire, and that's whoever was writing this, whoever was with him, he says, We desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and so he talks about this full assurance of hope god has offered us full assurance in him and many times i believe believers settle for half assurance or a quarter of assurance now if you are saved in christ you are sealed for heaven he's taking care of you but did you know that he has more than just that for you many times we settle for the beginning and he's got so much more to be the fullness of christ dwelling in our lives and so he says we desire that each one of you show the same diligence not just to, for the first piece but to the full assurance of hope until the end and, and it's just like a long distance runner how many long distance runners get up to the starting line and they've practiced and spent mornings and evenings and just worn themselves out getting ready for the race 
and then go about halfway through and go, you know what, I'm satisfied. I'm good. No, they don't. Marriage, as a matter of fact, many times you'll get, you know, you, you, your side gets all burning and, and you get sick or something happens in the middle of the race and you can't finish it. And I've seen racers do that recently that are just tore up angry. I've practiced and I didn't even get to finish. It's frustrating. Yet in our Christian walks many times, we're, we're content just to go halfway. And so he says there, I don't want you to become sluggish or lazy, but I imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how can I keep from becoming sluggish in my faith? How can I obtain the full assurance of hope? You know, remember the, the audience of this book is Jewish Christians and they have become believers and yet they're kind of having a little of a doubting Thomas moment if you want. I followed Christ, I believe in Him, but man, it seems like I had it better when I was worshiping in the temple. When I was, think about it, some of them, left, their families wouldn't have anything to do with them anymore because now they were worshiping Jesus, who the Jews thought was a blasphemer. And so you're put out of the family. You're not invited to Thanksgiving anymore. You're not invited to Passover. So many of them are going, was this really worth it or not? Maybe I should just, you know, compromise a little bit, and that way I can still hang out with my family. How many of us would be in the same spot? How many of us struggle with being in that same spot? I do. My family does not treat me the same anymore because I'm too bold for them. Like, I'm glad you follow Jesus, but lighten up a little bit, you know? And that's gotten better, but I don't know if it's because I've been going full or because I've dialed it back. I don't know, but I struggle with that because I, I want to be full in for Jesus and I want to uh, be a faithful witness. And so how can I keep from becoming sluggish in my faith, whether it's for a reason of I've lost my family or whether it's a reason of, you know, I, I really miss my old religion or because I want to go back and hang out with the friends I used to have? How can I be, come, uh, how can I keep from becoming sluggish in my faith? So verse 12 is the antidote. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It takes faith, which is just a fancy word for full-on trust in God, and patience. Now, that's like a four-letter bomb for most people when you talk about patience. Because we're not. We want to have our meals in 30 seconds from the microwave, Right? We don't want to have to wait more than three seconds at the drive through window. Um, by the way, now we don't want to go and wait in the line at the cashier, so we got self-checkout. And we also don't want to even go into the store, so we got pull up to the store and get it, checkout. What do they call that? Uh, I don't know. Walmart pickup, right? But it takes patience even to go to Walmart. Why would it not take patience to trust in God's promises? So he gives exhibit A for his testimony here, Abraham. And in verse 13 through 15, he starts to talk about it. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, you know the story of Abraham? 
and you hear the words patiently endured, you should have a gut check to go, wait a minute, I know Abraham's story. Was he really patient? Sometimes we look at Old Testament saints and we say, wow, look at the heroes of the faith. And if you've ever read a children's Bible, it's all about the heroes of the faith. But what it should be called is the heroes, though they were failures of the faith. You know, if I was to name it, now God doesn't name them failures, by the way. He names them faithful. In his word right here, it says that he patiently endured by faith. But if you read his story, and then you see what God calls him, maybe you could relate with Abraham a little bit more than you could before. So let's take a few minutes this morning and look at the life of Abraham, starting in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. So we start at Genesis chapter 12, and we see the Lord speaking to Abraham. And Abraham was from an idolatrous nation. He was from a nation that actually worshipped idols, and they had a multitude of them. His own father was an idol maker. And so it says there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, leave your family, leave your fa father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. And then he makes a promise. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let me ask you a question. When God made this promise to Abraham, what had Abraham done to earn it or deserve it? Nothing. God simply picked out a man whom he wanted to show himself faithful to. And so he makes this promise. He tells him to do something, but he makes him a promise before he's ever done it. I love that. That's what God does. He tells us to do things, but he prom makes promises to us before we ever even do them. So then fast forward to Genesis 15, where it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He said Eleazar, his servant, would be his heir. Verse 4 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heavens. So he did what we would do with our kids if we're outdoors people. He said, go outside and look up at the sky. Now try to count the stars. I did this with Lucy. Try to count the stars. She got to 10. There's 10. And I said, is there really 10? Count them again. So she counted to 10, and then she goes, there's too many to count. Even kids get it, right? So he's speaking to Abram as a child because he wants him to get a simple truth. We overcomplicate the word of God. God speaks to us in ways we can understand. So he says, 
Look at the stars. And if you are able to number, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. And look at this. He accounted it to him for righteousness. So he called Abram to believe his promise before the promise was fulfilled. We walk by faith, not by sight. God says, I'm going to do it. He will do it. Abram's relationship with God was really no different than ours is. So if you know what is going to take place here, you find out that Abram got a little bit uh, impatient. And he knew the customs of the world. And so rather than just trusting that God would do it, he seeks to find a way to fulfill God's promises for him. And so by doing so, he takes and he's speaking to his wife and his wife says to him, why don't you take my maidservant, since I haven't provided for you any offspring, why don't you take my maidservant, lay with her, and I will, she will give birth while sitting on my lap. How awkward would that be? How awkward would any of this be? This is a horrible situation that Abram agrees to. I don't think she had to talk him into it. He was like, makes sense to me. And he listened and did as she said. And as a result of that, they have a child by the name of Ishmael. So Ishmael, Galatians says, is a child of the flesh, something that Abram did in his own understanding and produced. But here's the problem with the works of the flesh. They always bring forth death. They're sin. And then later, here's what God does. It says there in Hebrew, or excuse me, Genesis 9, 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. It's the same promise. He's repeating it. God repeats things just like we do to our kids because we don't listen, right? And so he says, uh, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Abram meant father. Abraham means, or Abram means father. Abraham means father of nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. For look at this, an everlasting covenant, one that never ends. And to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then so God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then he goes on to speak about the specific details of when it's supposed to be done. 
And then, verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But, but Lord, I, I already have a son. What about him, right? And God says, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So God doesn't accept our works of fulfilling his plans in our life. He says, I will do it. And what's great about this story is that God promised something that was impossible. Sarah was barren, and she was almost 100 years old. In our day and age, we say it's impossible at 40. But if God wants to do something, whether or not it makes practical sense to us, he can do it, and he will. And so notice he also does it despite the fact that Abraham committed adultery despite the fact that Abraham heeded the voice of his wife and did the thing that God was not pleased with. So when God promises something, our biggest mistakes cannot mess up his plan. So then the Lord, verse, or chapter 18, the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing by him and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread, and you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass, pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. So he offers hospitality to these three men. And they said, do, you, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly make ready three measures of meal, knead it, and make cakes. Now, ladies, we can do that now, right? We've got already risen bread, we've got these doughs, and we've got an oven. She's got to build a fire. She's, you know, sometimes I think that we think how hospitable we can be and we have many people that are well versed in like having the stuff ready if somebody shows up but many times we're not even we don't even make ourselves ready for random company right can you imagine what spot sarah's in she's going make bread i gotta go knead the dough i gotta go you know mix it all together i gotta go you know crunch it up and and do all i don't even know how to make bread you know but i'm assuming she's got yeast rolls ready right but not just bread, but three things of bread. And uh, could you make that happen? And so, you know, if your husband is ever a little bit demanding of you, um, he's, he's definitely a child of Abraham, for sure. But then he says, um, sorry, I kind of got off 
backtrack there. He says, And Abraham ran to the herd. He took a tender and good calf. He gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And the man said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So over the course of the next however many months, I'm going to come back, and your son, or your, your wife, will bear a son. Sarah was listening into the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my, old, or my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And so uh, I want you to see here that Abraham was a man of faith. And his life, if you read the story of Abraham, he was a man who built altars. He made sacrifice to the Lord. And he spent time with God. This is really, these three men that show up are a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all show up in the life of Abraham. Abraham, notice his response when they come to the door. He washes their feet. He prepares the fatted calf. He gets bread made. He makes a table. And what do they do? They eat together. That's communion. That's the same thing as communion. We have a table. Preparation is made. We pray over the table. We're remembering the sacrifice. We no longer make the sacrifice of an animal. We're celebrating that Jesus is our sacrifice, and we're remembering that until he returns. So Abraham, look at this. He has this little communion meal, or kind of a big feast. He feeds these men that turn out to be God himself. And then in the midst of communing with God, doing something seemingly, uh, it doesn't produce anything. Have you ever thought about meals and how we, we eat and we get sustained by them, but sometimes when people come over afterwards, we're like, oh, I still didn't get this done, and I still get... Communion produces things. And in this case, Abraham, in the midst of this meal, actually, it produces an opportunity for him to hear from God. And when he hears from God, God speaks to him something he's getting ready to do, something he would be totally unaware of if they hadn't had that meal together. So time with God, inheriting the promises by knowing the promises and hearing them from the mouth of God and then believing them. And by the time that these men return to him the next year, he has a son, Isaac. So I share all of that, and I take that amount of time to, to talk through that because if you look at the life of Abraham, if you really look at it through the eyes of what we can see, and then you see what God says, that he obtained his promise by faith and patient endurance, you go, I don't think Abraham was any more patient than I am. Maybe that's not you, but that's kind of how I see it. God says, I'm going to do something. I go, cool. Is it done yet? Are we there yet? You know, just like our kids. I'm going to go take a trip somewhere. And are we there yet, Daddy? No, but we're going, I promise you. And so 
here's what happens. He says here, we don't want you to become sluggish, but instead imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And Abraham is his prime example. Abraham believed God. He lived accordingly. Does that mean that he did it all perfectly? Absolutely not. But when he got done flubbing up and messing up and creating more problems than, than good things, God still blessed him. And so that's the message from this. Continue on, and when you mess up, get up and continue on again. Repent and believe once again. Confess that you failed and say, God, I failed. Would you please help me to stop trusting in myself and just to believe what you've already said? And at that point, forget about it and move forward. Stop letting fear and failure and shame cripple you. It does. Jesus died for that stuff. So let's look at, the, so we looked at the faith and the patience in his life. Well, so they were based on, I need my clicker, Jesse. Um, so God made a promise to Abraham. But look at this. He made the promise in Genesis 22, verse 16 and 17, and this is what he quotes, saying, Surely, I, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. That was the promise. And so after he had patiently endured, he actually obtained the promise, and he saw his descendants. He saw Isaac. And then Isaac gets married to Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah have children, Jacob and Esau. And we see the fulfillment of the promise, and yet Abraham had to trust by faith. But he promised, and then he made an oath. So in verse um, 16... It says, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, and an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, in other words, nobody can stop what he says to be fulfilled, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, did you know that? It's impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled of refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And so an oath, I looked it up this morning, is a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees. They wouldn't make an oath, they, they wouldn't swear by themselves and say, hey, I promise, you can trust me. They would make an oath, but not about God. They would actually make an oath against the temple, or against the gold of the temple, or against the altar, or against the sacrifice that was on the altar. And essentially, Jesus says, if you make us an oath according to those things, those things are really nothing. It's the God who sanctifies them and makes them holy, that makes them worth promising. And so if you think about it, if someone sits down to be a, a testimony giver in court, they, I don't know if they still do this, but you'd lay your hand on a Bible, and you would end your oath by saying, so help me God. And so what you're saying is that everything I'm saying is true, I'm willing to stake God on it. I'm putting it to his word. And so um, maybe that meant something back in the day. I don't think it means a whole lot anymore because people will 
uh, commit perjury. They'll lie putting God's name up there. And I think they'll be accountable for that. But the idea is, is that if we were going to swear an oath and say, I'm going to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, we're saying that I'm swearing by someone greater than me that's hold, able to hold me accountable to that. Well, who's going to hold God accountable? So what it says in this passage is that God, when he makes a promise, he swears by an oath, nothing but the truth, so help me, me. You know, he, his promise is according to him being able to keep it. And God doesn't make promises unless he can keep them. And it, it's interesting to me because in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, there's a passage there where uh, Balak, the son of Zipporah, is having this conversation with, with, with Balaam. And there in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, um, it is said this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, everything God says will come to pass. He's never lied, and he can't. So this should give us strong consolation. If God promises you and I something that he's promised to his son to be a promise to the believers in his son, we should have strong consolation, or in our terms, great encouragement. And to those of us who have fled of refuge to lay hold of this hope set before us. So what you need to know about that phrase is that when he says, those of us who have fled of refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, in the Old Testament there were these cities in the nation of Israel called uh, cities of refuge. And if you were out chopping wood, and maybe Dave and I were out chopping wood and we didn't have a splitter, we were using, a, you know, we were using an old-fashioned log splitter, you know, elbow grease, and wearing ourselves out, and say I borrowed a, a hatchet or an axe from somebody, I swing that thing and the, the head flings off there, and it nails Dave and it kills him. That could happen, right? Accidents happen what would happen is there would be a he said, she said issue. So uh, I murdered Dave. So now what? The law says you stone a murderer. You have the right to do that in order to punish the one who spilled blood. His blood will be spilled. And so if that's the case, uh, what do we do? Well, God put a provision in there in case the man was innocent and there would be cities of refuge within running distance of just about everywhere. There were six of them. And you could run to that city of refuge. You could go inside of its walls. They would give you a trial. And if you were found to only have committed manslaughter versus murder, then you could stay in that city and never go outside its walls. And you would be safe from the avenger of blood. The next of kin that would want to take care of you would not be able to come into that city and kill you. And so the idea was, is if you would stay in there until the death of the high priest, at the time that the high priest dies, you could actually leave the city. You're saying, well, why does any of this matter? Well, now we have a high priest. We have a city of refuge that we can flee to, and our high priest never dies. So we come outside the city walls. We never have to worry about, like that man would, or me in that case, if I came outside the city walls, I risk that the avenger of blood has not let go of it. 
But in the case of our sins, we deserve death for those sins. But because our high priest is one that lives forever, we go outside the city walls, our high priest is still protecting us. And our high priest is Jesus. He not only protects us, but he made sacrifice so that our sins can be completely washed away, the guilt of them and the, and the shame. And so it is strong encouragement for us who have fled out of refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. We don't have to hide anymore in the city of refuge. We actually get to go outside the gates and go, I'm set free. We fled so that we can lay hold on the promises. So I guess for me, my word of encouragement to you this morning is if you've got things that you've done in your past that you're letting keep you in bondage to the point that you won't speak up about your faith and what Jesus has done for you, you're missing out on the fullness of Christ. You're missing out on the fact that the stuff that you continue to carry guilt about, you got to let it go. God has forgiven you. And if he is the one that forgave you, no one else can hold it against you because he gets the final word. I still remember when Kelly and I were dating and there were things that we had to share with one another that we felt guilty and shameful about. And we confessed them to one another before we ever got married. And I remember through tears she was sharing something with me and she's just so broken and I just had a moment of grace because I knew what I'd been forgiven I was able to look at her and say what Jesus would say to her. That sin wasn't against me, it was against God. And if he's forgiven you, who am I to hold it? It wasn't against me. It affects me, but if Jesus forgave it, who am I to bring it back up again? It'd be silly. And so, the beauty of forgiveness in Jesus. And so, verse 19 and 20, God's made a promise, God's made an oath that is immutable, and then... He is now our anchor. He's an anchor for our soul. So this hope, this hope is Jesus. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and it enters the presence behind the veil, the very presence of God. Our hope, this anchor is Jesus, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So God's made a promise, he's made an oath, and he's given us his son. And that's the fulfillment. So our anchor is sure. That means it cannot be moved no matter what waves or winds blow our ship around. It can't be moved. It's anchored in something that's not silty and able to be broken up. It's anchored in Christ. And it's steadfast. It's not weak enough to where it will ever give up. Our anchor enters the presence behind the veil. You ever anchored a boat in a lake and it's choppy and that anchor kind of rocks around and, and actually if the water goes up, you read in the book of Acts, Paul was on a ship and he was anchored and they were getting blown around and this big torrential storm blew in. And so what they did trying to save themselves is they anchored the boat so that it wouldn't be run into the shore and collapse in the water. But when they anchored it, the water rose and fell and because they were anchored underneath the water. When the water rose, the ship completely collapsed because the pressure on the bottom of the ship caused it to be crushed. 
But our anchor is not below us. Our anchor is in Christ, which has passed through the veil, is in the very presence of God. Our anchor doesn't keep us where we are. Our anchor moves us forward. It moves us Godward. It moves us toward Christ. And so I love this because he said we have an anchor. And our forerunner, meaning Jesus Christ, has entered for us through death and then resurrection, even Jesus having become our high priest. He now sits down at the right hand of the Father, praying for us. And so Jesus has gone before us. We have access because he's our forerunner. We now enter into behind the veil because of him. We're anchored there because of him. And if we place our faith and patience in him, we won't be moved. So my question simply is, what about you? Is life rocking you to the point that you are forgetting that your hope is where your anchor is? And is your anchor there? Or is your anchor in a relationship? Or is your anchor in your job? Is your anchor in the fact that it's deer season? Is your anchor in anything that be, can be taken from you and moved? Is your anchor in daylight savings time? Right? Obviously it can be moved. I read the history on it. They change it randomly all the time. Or is your anchor in something that cannot be taken or shaken or moved or changed? So Father, we come to you grateful that we have hope in Christ. And I pray as Paul or whoever, <laughs> I think it was Paul, wrote Hebrews, um, we pray that we would not come short of the finish line. Lord, help us to anchor ourselves in this hope, to live our lives for this hope, to truly glorify you, but also to experience the fullness and the beauty of our relationship with you. Help us to take out time, to carve out time in our schedule, to simply sit down and commune with you in a meal. We don't just have to take communion here at church. We can do that at home. Help us to carve out time to just listen for your voice, to read your word, to listen to the promises and take them for our own, and to live as though those promises that you said that are there for us will be fulfilled so that we don't compromise and try to work out things in our own, in our own way and create death and sadness and pain. So, Father, we need your spirit. We need grace. We need you to empower us to live this way because it's not natural for us. So, Father, thank you for this word and thank you for being our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.